Welcome to Opportunity Africa, Unpacking the Continent. Today, Brendan and I are privileged to be joined by Colin Coleman, formerly the Chief Executive Officer for Goldman Sachs in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, we've asked Colin to give us an update on his views um, on the future of investment in Africa. Colin, welcome. Thank you. Colin, um, maybe for me to start, uh, as Rudolf uh, touched on, we read your paper that you delivered on the 26th of February at Yale, titled, entitled uh, China versus USA, A Battle for Africa's Future. Uh, with great interest, um, and we want to thank you again for agreeing to talk to us and to update you on your views, uh, specifically in light of uh, what has happened since then, not least COVID uh, and the election of Joe Biden, I think both of which would have major impact on Africa's economic fortunes. Um, but perhaps as a starting point, uh, maybe you can give our listeners an overview of your paper uh, of, the de- of the developmental needs for Africa, and then we can look at some of the impacts of the current events that have happened on, on your paper itself. Okay, there are really four main ideas uh, in the paper. <laughs> Number one, that it's essential in the world that the world cooperates rather than competes to drive Africa's growth over the next century. Underpinning this is that the population of Africa is set to rise to 39% of the world's population. In other words, two out of five people in the world uh, are set to be Africans by the turn of the century. It's essential in the world that the world cooperates rather than competes to drive Africa's growth over the next century. Uh, and in order for us to be able to uh, break this dislocation between size of population and share of world economy, Africa's economy needs to rise and it needs a lot of help to do that. Number two, uh, China has a long-term strategy uh, to achieve a partnership with Africa and is throwing resources uh, driven from the center of the state uh, at Africa and we can delve into all the ways in which it is doing that, but it is a military, economic, social, political, uh, financial, uh, and resource strategy that is uh, coordinated and driven from the center by President Xi Jinping. Um, three, uh, the United States is more present than in Africa than people think. Uh, in respect of investment, uh, in respect of trade, in respect of aid, uh, and to some extent in respect of military presence, uh, but it is uh, being outstripped by China, and China and the United States uh, are both um, competing uh, to dominate the African agenda. Uh, And then lastly, uh, to come back to the beginning, In order for Africa's growth uh, to get to, let's say, 12% of GDP, of the world's GDP by 2060, uh, we will need effectively on an annualized basis between now and then in the next 40 years to grow uh, Africa's economy by 6% per annum. Uh, 
Now, in the last 20 years, uh, Africa's economy has grown on average 5% per annum. So we need to outperform the last 20 years' growth rate by about a percent uh, in terms of GDP in a world that is much more difficult uh, and with, uh, in, within the post-COVID environment that has become extremely challenging. So we cannot afford to have a competitive relationship between the world's nations uh, in respect of Africa. We need a cooperative agenda at the G20 between the United States and China, and it is essential that Africa and China cooperate as the world's two biggest economies to achieve that. That is the essence of and summary of what I laid out at Yale a little a little less than a year ago. Colin, thank you for that. Um, what we'll do is we'll put a link to this article um, in the um, header to the podcast so that our listeners can actually go and um, read the detail of that presentation you did in February uh, last year. Um, because I think it's very pertinent um, uh, in terms of the discussion we, 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 we're going to have now. Uh, what I want to ask you is um, there's now a major change in America with a new administration coming in uh, and um, with a very different style one can already observe. And I wanted to ask you how you think that is going to change the dynamics in the competition between America and China as it pertains to uh, the economic battle for Africa? Well, firstly, in terms of its political makeup, its commitment to diversity, uh, and broadly its commitment to multilateralism in the world, the Biden administration uh, should be one that will uh, much more sharply focus on the African agenda in a constructive way. The Bush administration sh- narrowed, narrowly focused on the HIV and AIDS dynamic. Uh, the Obama and uh, Clinton administrations tried to evolve a trade uh, relationship. The Trump administration was largely absent from Africa. Uh, and I expect the Biden administration to embrace and uh, address a combination of a trade, military, uh, and investment agenda in Africa that could up the um, momentum of U.S. engagement. But at the same time, as I said, the multilateralist uh, approach won't get rid of the tensions of between China and the United States, but will mitigate them. And we should have a far more constructive backdrop uh, for Africa. Finally, to say, um, the global economy looks set to expand uh, in 2021, I think on average around 4%. Uh, but China's uh, expansion uh, is looking to be quite strong. Uh, so back to about 8% growth is what I saw projected by some economic analysts recently for 2021 from, you know, the trend growth of around 6% pre-COVID. So we should see a snapback in China. We are going to see a snapback in the United States on the back of confidence over the pandemic vaccination program. Uh, and we will see rising commodity prices uh, and so on, which will be good for Africa, for uh, commodity exporters, uh, and for mineral exporters like we have in many countries here. Uh, Net-net, in a rising global environment, um, Africa needs to try and sort out and address its local issues, particularly with respect to COVID, 
to optimize the growing confluence, including China, Africa, including the global economy, including rising commodity prices. Colin, um, we started traveling uh, into the U.S. in about 2007, 2008, when uh, um, the sort of African story was was being embraced, particularly in the U.S. Uh, and over time, and, and particularly sort of in the last couple of years, Africa couldn't seem further from um, the investment focus of, of uh, private equity funds or, or, or family offices. But what do you think it will take for U.S. firms to commit to investing in Africa? Uh, and do you think the likes of the DFC, um, the ex-OPEC debt vehicle, uh, will provide the impetus and the resources to allow investors to venture into Africa? I think, as I said, there's a much better backdrop around growth. And investors at the end of the day, whether they're private wealthy individuals, institutions or, or companies, are looking for growth and for superior growth. In order for them to get confidence that that will arise in Africa, there are a couple of major domestic uh, issues that need to be addressed across the board. Number one, corruption um, and lack of uh, efficient government uh, in many countries in Africa being 54 countries, one doesn't want to generalize, but I think that's true in many places. Number two, people want to see economic reform, modernization, and the Africa free trade area is a major plus uh, for any multinational corporation or investor who wants to imagine that their product can have a market, uh, not just of... uh, you know, 60 million people in South Africa, uh, 100 million people in Ethiopia, 200 million people in Nigeria, dislocated from each other. But of the 1.2 billion Africans, to the extent that the Africa Free Trade Agreement, not overnight, but over a period of two, one or two decades, uh, can uh, start a process of integrating, um, you know, and uh, providing a much better backdrop for efficient movement of people, goods, and services, uh, you know, without the trade barriers in place, then you can uh, attract manufacturing into many countries on the basis those manufacturing plants have a market on their doorstep of 1.2 billion, not just the local markets. And then lastly, uh, there are a bunch of capital market and state-owned enterprise reforms required not just in South Africa, but in many countries. Uh, where outside South Africa, there's no real capital market or liquidity in the equity or debt markets, uh, particularly in the equity markets. Uh, and um, with respect to state-owned enterprises, the kind of baggage of old neo-colonialism, old um, post-colonial economies, where uh, governments tend to want to hold on to their state-owned enterprises uh, you know, um, when they shouldn't, and they uh, are retarding their own growth. So, you know, just witness Safaricom in Kenya, for example, the largest, uh, actually the largest non-South uh, African, African-listed company, uh, you know, that was an absolute success story of public-private partnership. The Kenyan government still has a significant stake. Uh, the Vodafone and Vodacom still have stakes in that company. Uh, they've innovated with the uh, invent of M-Pesa. It's grown uh, from nothing to a very significant company with great um, financial prospects and good margins. Uh, that's an example of 
how reforms are needed in these economies. So I could go on and on, but let me pause there. Colin, um, this morning's paper um, has an article in uh, regarding the Africa Free Trade Agreement, and they make the point that it's been nearly a decade um, that it's taken to to form the Africa Free Trade uh, Agreement uh, and to get all the countries to sign on. And at this stage, um, 32 of the 50-odd countries who have signed on have actually ratified it um, in their, uh, internally in their own parliaments. How long do you think uh, 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 do we have to run before this agreement becomes um, visible on the ground in terms of its impact? Yeah, so there's some uh, teething problems, I guess. For example, I read that Botswana hasn't yet um, uh, ratified certain of the provisions necessary for the South African Customs Union to start trading. And therefore, until Botswana does that, South Africa can't start its own operations. Uh, so, the, and Egypt is something the same. So, e- effectively, you need all the countries to sign up, get all the um, all the requirements in place in order for it to start to trade. But I think this is going to be a multi-decade process. I don't think this should be seen as an overnight, immediate process. But I do think that with the eighty percent odd. Um, requirement of countries uh, to produce tariff-free goods, so they select their own, as far as I understand it, goods to be tariff-free, uh, that's a very significant chunk uh, of the uh, goods that are going to be flowing through these countries that need to be tariff-free right at the outset. So that should start a not insignificant process at the beginning, once it's operating, but clearly countries are going to you know, choose those goods that for the 20% uh, they benefit the most from and maintain tariffs on those 20% uh, to get 80% of their revenue. So I think you could be uh, cynical about it, but I wouldn't be. I think this is a, a, an important beginning of a process. Ultimately, right at the end, you know, we could get one single African passport, one single African currency, um, you know, and ironically, if I remember, I think um, uh, Gaddafi was the first person to talk about a single African currency, which obviously is a long dream uh, or a dream that will take a long time to realize. Uh, and But I think uh, Africa could be headed down that road. It's essential because the pressures are going to build, as I said about the population. When you have currently 17% of the world's population with 3% of the world's resources and they're outstripping population growth, uh, relative to the rest of the world, those populations and the demands that they're going to have are going to grow, or the anger, violence, uh, migration pressures are going to build in those societies, and it will have indirect consequences on the world's major economies and societies in a kind of age of populism and nationalism that could be very, very dangerous from a military and terrorism point of view. Uh, my article tracks the a surprising large percentage of terrorism cases in the world today that uh, effectively take place in either the Middle East or Africa. Um, It's the majority of terrorism cases in the world So already. So uh, it's vital that we uh, do see progress economically with reforms, with the Africa Free Trade Agreement, with cooperation, with investment, and 
you know, on the other hand, if we do get a fraction of this growth, there's going to be so much money to make, to be made for investors uh, because they'll be able to get a slice of this tremendous growth. And that's the question, you know, we could face a situation in the next 40 years where if Africa does grow by average 6% per annum per year, uh, you will have the absolute largest uh, contribution of growth in the world arriving from Africa, which will, you know, make Africa start to feel like China 30 years ago. Colin, uh, if I look at our, our client base, um, we have American customers who've been successful in the agricultural industry in Africa, uh, also in the mining industry uh, in Africa um, over the last five or six years. And mm. uh, we see tremendous um, growth uh, in uh, something like cell phone, and I'm specifically talking about smartphone penetration in Africa, mm. where, where the, uh, the penetration of, of smartphones is forecast to double uh, or more than double in the next five years again. Uh, and there are some industries that are growing very fast off that. Do you see any other industries where American investors uh, specifically will target? Well, I mean, when I was at Goldman Sachs, you saw a wave of consumer investments uh, from the beverage companies, Coca-Cola, from Pepsi, from Kellogg's, from a number of them in the consumer space. I think you're going to see that carrying on uh, because the consumer dividend of the demographic growth is going to be huge. Uh, I think the infrastructure space, particularly in power, you're going to see solar and renewable activities. And I, I've always sort of thought that battery-fired power is going to be a solution the same way as uh, the cell phone was to the fixed-line uh, dead industry in telecoms um, and just leapfrogging that. And I think so So that's going to be a big area. Um, and then um, I think that... With the right policies, manufacturing and industrialization, there are some countries like Ethiopia that have, um, you know, uh, very solid policies to attract uh, low-cost uh, labor uh, and provide that low-cost labor to industrialists and manufacturers who are effectively exiting countries like China that are becoming more high-cost in their labor and want to have low-cost production. So I think there's um, a number of uh, these areas which are quite promising. Colin, I think you, you summed Africa up quite aptly by saying it's uh, you can't generalize, and obviously there are 54 individual countries that are very specific. But uh, if you had a, um, a U.S.-based investors that are looking to to venture into Africa, um, having your experience, do you have any perhaps uh, practical advice or high-level sort of concepts that one would need to take into account when when venturing into Africa? Well, I think the first place to start, and I say this to my students, I'd say to businesses that when I was at Goldman Sachs, is um, the the large countries are the engine room of Africa. And you can identify the large countries on one hand, you know, so South Africa, Nigeria, uh, Angola, Kenya, Ethiopia, uh, maybe you just add Egypt and Morocco in the North uh, Africa space. Um, and, you know, it's probably a truism to say that no amount of growth in the smaller countries like Rwanda, um, uh, Ghana, uh, Tanzania, Mozambique, et cetera, et cetera, is going to mean anything or move the needle if those big countries' engine rooms are not firing on all cylinders. So what you want to do is you want to find a hook 
into Africa in one of those big countries, choose your space, and then, you know, effectively use that as your nerve center for your business and build from there. Uh, some people have done that in Nigeria. Some people have done that uh, in South Africa. Others have done it in Kenya. Um, you know, I, I think those are the countries that are going to determine the pace at which Africa as a whole on, on aggregate grows. And, and also, um, Colin, uh, I think one, one, one issue that sort of manifested itself early on with some of the forays of the bigger private equity funds coming in, um, and trying to do big ticket deals in Africa, I think they were fairly unsuccessful. Um, as well as obviously, I think the, the fly and fly out policy didn't seem to work. But, uh, I mean, how important is it for, to have obviously credible local content or boots on the ground when obviously investing? Um, and, and in our view, and what we've seen is there certainly seems to be uh, a lot of smaller investments as opposed to one or two real big ticket investments. Yeah, so look, I think it's critical that people have an on-the-ground uh, presence. That might be a small presence, but I think you need to invest wisely. I mean, uh, you need to, if you're employing, let's say, a head of an office uh, in a particular country, you know, you don't need to employ many people, but you need to employ the right people and you need to pay for that. Otherwise, you know, you'll get... Uh, bad information and you'll make bad investments. Uh, and that has happened, by the way. So, uh, you know, getting the right people on the ground, number one. Number two, partnering in these local markets. Uh, you know, uh, the MTN story um, was one of great success, but also great failure at the same time. And they've learned their lessons because uh, the fact is, you know, when you, when you succeed, the recipe for for your failure is being bred at the same time and you need to protect yourself. So uh, otherwise the government's come at you with tax claims like in the case of uh, Barrick in Tanzania or uh, in Mali or uh, in Nigeria with MTN. Um, and so you need to have your local partners that are trusted, that are clean uh, and are professional uh, in your shareholding base. And, you know, to the extent you can get your employees into a shareholding base, that also adds extra protection. So these are mitigants against long-term exploitation of your own success uh, by third parties, say, uh, governments and others. Point. Colin, thank you. Thank you for the insight provided. I, I think we're in full agreement with you that it's uh, this is not a topic the world can let, just let drift by. It requires... Um, action from governments and it requires for businesses to see these opportunities and uh, I hope and I think that this uh, podcast we've just uh, done uh, will stimulate the debate around that. Well thanks I mean uh, uh, this is the reason why my Yale course was called Doing Business in Africa the Last Frontier of Global Growth because there is a massive opportunity facing the next generation of business people and investors but obviously it contains many, many risks, not only for those businesses, but for the world. And we need all to understand and embrace it. So thanks very much for doing it.